There are in this text two very familiar stories which uh, don't appear to be connected in any way at all, but in fact are. They are the stories of the blessing of the children in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 19, and then the story of the rich young ruler from verse 16 on to the end of the chapter. And as I say, whenever those passages are normally taught, they're considered as separate uh, accounts, but they belong together. It's obvious. Both in uh, Matthew's thinking and in his development of the book, they belong together because he joins the two stories by the conjunction and in verse 16. And when we see them together, then the question that Peter raises later in the story in Jesus' answer takes on added significance. I think that these two stories, as perhaps no other accounts in the New Testament, taken together, give us really the substance of the Christian life, the essence of Christian living, what it's all about. Now let's look first at the story of Jesus and the little children. Verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. It's really a very strong term. It means to censure them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and stop hindering them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Apparently mothers were bringing their children to Jesus, Luke says even babies in arms, in the hope that Jesus would pray for them and bless them. I, uh, I assume it's mothers. The passage doesn't tell us that. It simply says they, and the other gospels say they, but normally it's mothers who, who have this kind of concern for their children and would do this, this sort of thing. And they bring their children uh, to Jesus. Most of you, I'm sure, have seen the picture that someone has drawn uh, of this event. It depicts Jesus in a beautiful garden, and uh, he's surrounded by neat, tidy, clean, well-mannered, docile little children, one sitting on his lap, you know, looking up with adoring eyes. I can assure you it was not that way. If you know anything about children, and if you know anything about eastern children, you know that it simply was not that way. In the first place, little children in the Near East are not clean. Uh, water is at a premium in that part of the world, and uh, baths are just not uh, a part of the weekly routine. Uh, water is too precious for that sort of thing, and most of the children are uh, dirty, very dirty. They uh, wear the same garment to play in all day and sleep in at night, and uh, they have a very uh, distinct uh, aroma about them. If you've ever been around Bedouin children, uh, my son came back from camp after a week of uh, being uh, away from home. He had the same shirt on that he, that he wore when he left. He hadn't had a bath for a week, and he, I, I had the distinct memory of some Bedouin children I've uh, run into from time to time. These children are simply not clean. Furthermore, they're not uh, polite. They're not even nice. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of these children are downright mean. They, uh, they grow up that way. You have to be tough to survive in that part of the world, and uh, these children, are many of them, are just uh, ornery. There's no other way to put it. I, I can speak from personal experience. Uh, a number of years ago, some friends of mine and I were traveling through Israel, and uh, uh, we realized what, I, what was for me a, a lifelong uh, ambition, perhaps, to, uh, to traverse uh, Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, Hezekiah was a king in the 8th century B.C., king of the southern kingdom of, of Judah, and uh, 
in building some siege works, some uh, water system for the Assyrian uh, 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 siege, he cut a tunnel right through the city of David from the spring Gihon on the east side of the city, underneath the city, uh, inside the walls to the Tyropean Valley. So they'd have a water supply during the, the period of the siege. And I've always wanted to walk through that tunnel. I had read about it in, in books and journals, and, and for me it was the ambition of, it was a long-time ambition. But uh, when we got there, we discovered they had blocked the entrance to the tunnel. They weren't allowing anyone to go through it. I was greatly disappointed. But uh, one of the men with us uh, could speak a little Arabic, and he found a little boy running around uh, on the streets, and he said, uh, ask him if he knew of any way to get into the tunnel. And the little boy said, no, but my brother knows. And so he ran and got his brother, and his brother came back. He was about 10 years old, this bright-eyed, cute little boy. And he says, I'll take you uh, through the tunnel. So he went off to find some candles, which he sold to us for uh, an exorbitant price. <laughs> showed us the entrance to the tunnel, and then he had second thoughts, and he said, no, I tell you what, you all go through the tunnel, and I'll meet you on the other side and open the door. There's an iron gate on the other end. So in our naivete, uh, we lit our candles and started through this uh, tunnel. And it's quite an experience. It's about 1,500 feet long, very narrow, about 18 inches wide in some spots, of water up to your waist. It's just kind of spooky. So we made our way all the way through to the other side, and uh, we were standing in the spring up to our waist, and it was cold. The water was really frigid. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and then we realized we had been had. This little boy had taken us. And so we had to turn around and start back, and by this time our candles were almost extinguished. So we took one little candle stub, and the man up front held the candle stub, and we grabbed hold of each other's belts, and we made our way all the way back. But we were wet and cold, and exhausted, and if we'd caught that little boy, we would have strung him up. <clears throat> but we never found him. He never showed up again. And uh, that's always been in the back of my mind is the kind of uh, children that you run into over there. That's just the way life is for them. Now, I, I say that not to disillusion you, but uh, to give you a picture of reality. These children were not neat, clean, docile, mannerly, courteous little children. They were little Bedouin children. They were malodorous. They were tramping all over Jesus' feet, pushing and shoving, tugging on his robe, trying to get his attention. Hey, Mr. Jesus, look at my frog! Look at my frog! And that's just the way children are. And that's why the disciples were so upset. They wanted to get rid of these little kids. These little, um, what do you call them? Rugrats? Yeah. <laughs> want to get them out of the way so Jesus could... Uh, Get on with the business of doing something, something significant like teaching adults. But uh, Jesus corrected them. And actually, his, his rebuke is much more sharky, sharp even than our translations admit. He says, stop hindering them. Leave them alone. Let them come to me. You see, the disciples thought they were protecting Jesus from the disciples. And really what Jesus is saying is the children need to be protected from bungling adults. Now, it tells us something about the character of Jesus. He was, he was all man, and yet he, he loved children. And that gives us some indication of their worth. In this day, children, in Jesus' day, children were not that highly regarded. But Jesus considered them worthy. They were people, just like everybody else. And he loved them. It didn't bother him that they were dirty and uh, that they misbehaved. He just loved them the way they were. Secondly, it says something about the character of children. 
Uh, you notice how Jesus puts it. The kingdom of heaven. I keep forgetting to put my glasses on and the text disappears. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In other words, he's telling us something about the character of children that we ought to emulate. There's something noteworthy about them. We need to learn from them, not uh, disregard them. Now, uh, Jesus doesn't tell us what it is about children that's noteworthy, but uh, those of us that have been parents know what he's talking about. You don't have to uh, think too much to know what children are like. In the first place, children are very ingenuous, very candid, out front. They, they deal in terms of reality and truth. They don't have the sham and, and pretense that we have. They're just real. I was uh, walking through a supermarket the other day, and, and there's a little three-year-old girl sitting in a three- or four-year-old girl sitting in a basket, and her mother was pushing it. And as I went by, I winked at her, and she looked at me, and then she looked at her mother, and she pointed at me, and she said, Mom, look at that man. He doesn't have any hair on top of his head. <laughs> and her mom turned beet red and clamped a hand over her mouth, you know, but uh, the truth was out. Now, a lot of you have thought that many times, but you never said it, see. And children are just like that. They're just open and, and real, genuine. There's no sham. They don't hide. And uh, secondly, they have a capacity that I call rapture. I don't know what else to call it. Uh, they, they're receivers, and everything is exciting to them. They're learning. They're teachable. Uh, they see a little piece of mica in the, in the sidewalk, and they squat down to look at it. You ever try to hike with a, with a kid? You know, you want to get there and back again. They want to stop and look along the way. Everything's exciting to them. Uh, an ant pulling a leaf or a, some dew on a, on a leaf or something catches their attention. And they want to know. They're open, teachable, credulous, believing, see, trusting. And that's the third thing that strikes me about children. They're just natural believers. Uh, in fact, in, in Matthew... A couple of chapters back, remember Jesus described children as these little ones who believe on me. They just naturally believe. You and I get to be so cynical. You know, we call it sophistication. We've grown up. But really what it amounts to is that we're just cynics. We've lost that capacity to be enraptured, to just to be entranced by something, to look at a sunset or to look at, a, at an insect and be caught up in wonder. But that's the way children are. They're so, so credulous, so believing, so teachable, so open. They're receivers. They're responsive. They're receptive. You see. And Jesus says that's the way we ought to be. The kingdom of God, the sons of the kingdom are like that. Uh, they're unlike the rest of the world. Uh, they're not cynical. They're not hard. They're trustful. They're restful. They're believing. Now, this, you see, sets the keynote for the rest of, of the passage. It's this that Jesus wants the rich young ruler to know, because I think he was there watching this uh, performance. And uh, Jesus is teaching here in an, in an illustri illustrative way what he's going to teach by precept to the rich young ruler. Now, let's look at the story that follows, the story of the young man and his wealth. Behold, one came to him 
and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Verse 15 tells us that Jesus had departed from there, and I assume that it was the house in which he was teaching. And uh, this young man had apparently heard Jesus' words, had heard him talk about the commendable thing uh, about children, which we should follow. And uh, he knew there was some good thing about a child. And that's what raises this question. What good thing should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, um, Luke describes this young man as, as a prince. He was a ruler, part of the ruling aristocracy, the Jewish aristocracy. Uh, furthermore, he was very wealthy. And uh, he's said to be young in this passage before us in Matthew. The term that's used for young man here, Dionyskos, means someone roughly between the ages of 25 and 40. So uh, here's a young man in the prime of his life, wealthy. Uh, he had it all together. He had everything that, that he needed for life. In my mind, I, I picture some uh, young uh, Ivy League uh, professional, an attorney or a physician from an Eastern establishment family with his uh, Brooks Brothers uh, suit on, standing before the Lord. A kind of a young Jewish Ted Kennedy or something like that. And uh, this young man comes to Jesus, and he asks a good question. At least it seems to be a good question. What good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? This was basically the question that, uh, that the Pharisees had asked Jesus earlier. What shall we do to work the works of God? That's always a, a good question, it seems. But actually, the young man was off target, as we'll see. It wasn't the wrong question. It was just that he was asking the question in the wrong way. And so, so the Lord proceeds very lovingly and graciously to correct him. Now, unlike us, the Lord doesn't back the truck up to him. We usually bury people under a pile of verbiage when they're wrong. But uh, the Lord doesn't. He uh, just lovingly uh, leads him out, helps him to discover for himself the truth. Now notice what he does. The man asked, Teacher, what good things should I do that I may, may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? The emphasis here is on the pronoun me, personal pronoun. His point is, why ask me what's good? There's only one who is good. That, of course, is God. And if you wish to enter into, a, into life, keep the commandments. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're a Jew. Why are you asking me what's good? You know God. You know who God is. You know what God is like. You know that he's the source of all good. And his word spells out what God is. So you don't need to ask me what's good and what's beautiful and, and what's right, what's pure. You know, you have the commandments. Now, if Jesus, now he's speaking to a Jew who had the law. But if Jesus were speaking to a Gentile, he would say precisely the same thing. If some Gentile had come to Jesus and said, what good thing should I do to inherit a li uh, eternal life? Jesus would say the same thing. You know. Why ask me? You know. Because the law is written on the heart. We don't need to be told what's good and what's right. We just know. The problem, of course, is how to do it. That's where the difficulty lies. But we don't need to be told what's good. We know. I was listening to the radio the other day, just kind of half listening to it, and this uh, song came on. It said something like, come come, stay with me tonight. I know it's wrong, but it seems so right, or something like that. And I thought, how does she know it's so wrong? And someone would say, well, some 
a Victorian moralist told her it was wrong. Well, my question is, then why not reject it? What's the problem? How does she know it's wrong? Well, because she just knows. That's why. It's written on the heart. Nobody needs to be told what's good. We know. And that's what Jesus says to the man. You know. Keep the commandments. The young man says, which ones? You begin to detect a little uneasiness there. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus says, now listen to this. This is so wise. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He starts with what we normally call the second tablet of the law. The, the commandments from the sixth commandment on that have to do with social relationships. And he says, well, listen to the law. You shall not commit murder. That's the sixth commandment. Young man says, I've never done that. You shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment. Young man says, well, I've always been unfaithful to my wife. You shall not steal. Young man had never stolen. You shall not bear false witness, the ninth command. He had never done that. And what he's expecting is what? The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, which the Lord omits and jumps back to the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and your father. Because the Lord already with his uncanny insight saw exactly what this young man's problem was. And he avoids the one command which he was hanging up on just as the apostle Paul did from Romans 7. He said, it's when that commandment, you shall not covet, came home to me that I died. I knew I couldn't keep the law. But the Lord isn't ready to force him to that point yet. And so he omits the commandment that he was stumbling over and he goes back to the fifth, honor your father and your mother. And the young man could say, I've done that. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is the summary of the law, the sort of general statement of the law, which any Jew of this day, of that day, uh, would have admitted to. And the young man says, all these I have kept. What am I still lacking? Lord, I've done these things and I still hurt inside. I'm still empty. Something's missing. What is it? And Mark says, the Lord looked at him and he loved him. He looked at this uh, choice young man and he saw his struggle and his yearning for goodness and he just loved him. And we need to keep that in mind, by the way, when we're struggling and we're hurting and we're questioning, and we're seeking that the Lord does not turn off on us. He just loves us. And He wants to supply the solution. He wants us to know the thing that's causing the emptiness. That's where He's leading this young man, see, to this self-discovery. All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, the word means come to an end, to be fulfilled, to be filled up to the full. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And bingo, that was the issue. That was the thing that held this young man back. That's what inhibited him. It's what kept him from having joy. That's the irony of his life. He had all this money and he was miserable. He knew something was missing. A lot of people I know envy the wealthy, but with the wealthy themselves well know that money in itself never satisfies, never gives us what we want. That's a bottomless pit. The more we get, the more we want. 
And that's where this young man was. Now we need to know that this is not a command which the Lord addresses to all wealthy people. If so, he contradicts much of Scripture. Paul, for instance, in 1 Timothy 6, takes an entirely different tack. He doesn't say to the wealthy, give away your money. He says, don't make it, uh, don't let it make you proud because there is a tendency for money to make you uh, feel above it all. He says, don't let it make you proud, don't trust in it, but be generous, willing to give. But he doesn't say give it all away. And even James in his strong rebuke of the rich doesn't say give your money away. No, what Jesus is doing is dealing with this man's problem. The one problem that kept him from fulfillment was that his money had him. It wasn't. The problem was not that he had money. It's that his money had him. That was his God. And he was thinking, if I just can turn one more deal, then I'll be happy. Boy, there's a piece of land up on the Golan that overlooks the Jordan Valley. Wow, if I could get that backcountry ranch, then I'd have it made. But the Lord knew he, he would never be happy. The more he got, the more he would want. And the Lord's just trying to spare him. From all that heartache, all the pain that comes from restlessly, endlessly searching for happiness through money, the Lord knew he'd never find it there. And so the, the, the reason the Lord puts his finger on that issue is because that's what inhibited him. That's what kept him from happiness. He says, sell it, give it to the poor. In other words, divest yourself of all of it. Get rid of it. And then come follow me and you'll, you'll have what you're looking for. And the passage tells us that he was grieved. It grieved him. Verse 22, when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. And the term here that's translated property is a word that's used in, uh, in Greek literature for real property, land, which in those days was the most substantial investment uh, you could make as it is today. When everything else was falling apart, land values would remain the same. And this man had his, he was a wise man. He had his money sunk in, in real property. And that's something you can count on. That's a tangible asset. When everything goes sour, you'll always have something you can fall back on. You see, what this young man wanted was the Lord because he knew the Lord was the real thing. But he also wanted a backup system. He wanted to be able to go back to something that was a little more tangible, a little more reliable. And to divest himself of all of his investments was too radical. No, no, we've got to keep something back for a rainy day. We'll trust the Lord up to this point, but beyond that point, I need something that I can really count on. And see, that's what the Lord saw. And so he said to him, and only to him, give it up. Give it away. Give it to the poor. And come and follow me. He couldn't do it. He turned and walked away. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus looked after him and he was sorrowful, but he didn't follow after him. He didn't run him down. He didn't chase him. He let him go because the man had to learn for himself what an unreliable resource wealth is. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
Now, when the Lord says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, what he really means is it's impossible. That's clear from the analogy that he uses of a camel in the needle of an eye. Now, there's some who say that at one time in history, there was a very narrow gate in the walls of Jerusalem through which now, uh, camels uh, can only uh, pass with great difficulty. And it's this that Jesus is referring to. But there's no historical or archaeological evidence for that. That's just uh, something that someone uh, thought might be the case at some point, but it's, there's no, no evidence for it. No, no, Jesus is talking about a big lumpy camel and a tiny eye of a sewing needle. And if you ever try to cram a camel through a sewing needle, you know what, what he's talking about. It can't be done. Can't even get started. Can't even get the nose in the thing. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's impossible. With men. And that's why Jesus didn't chase him down. He knew that no amount of argumentation would convince him. As in all of life, it all depends upon God. God has to show a rich man that his wealth is inadequate. You know how he does it? He has three ways, I believe. Perhaps there are more, but there are three that occurred to me. And we have to keep in mind that everything God does is redemptive. It's all designed to produce the very best. One of the ways that he uses is simply to take our wealth away. We all know how tenuous the economy is. And, and some of you are struggling right now with uh, loss of, of income. Your resources are dwindling. And uh, this can happen to anyone. He can just simply take it away. That's one way. Another way is to bring something into our life that uh, you can't buy your way out of. It's something that money, uh, you can't do anything about it with money. A physical problem, a health problem, a marital breakup, the loss of a loved one, a death in the family. And you realize that there are some things in life that money just can't buy. Or the third thing that God may do is give you more of it than you desire. Isn't that odd? He may just pour it on. Just pile it on. Just give you more and more and more until you're sick of it. You OD on money. You have everything you want and you don't want anything you have. There's an interesting story in, in the account of the wilderness wanderings when the children of Israel began to complain about uh, the manna. You know, they'd had manna fixed 14 ways Manna burgers and manicotti and all sorts of stuff. <clears throat> they were just sick of the stuff. And they started chanting, we want meat, we want meat, we want meat. And God said, all right, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And along came an evening flight of quail and they got sticks out and they started knocking these birds out of the sky and pretty soon they had baskets and baskets and baskets of quail and they ate quail until the quail was coming out their ears and they got sick. And many of them died. And the psalmist says, he gave them their request. And he sent leanness into their souls. And sometimes that's the way God works. He just gives you everything you want. Until you just get sick of it. It's not only true of money, it's true of sex, it's true of anything. If we want to go that way, God will just give us all we want. Until we hate it. Absolutely hate it. But you see, God will do it. God's so gracious. He loves us. Wants to divest us of those things that hurt and hinder and impede, destroy our walk with Him, and so He'll, He'll just do anything 
to get us to the place that we'll listen to Him. And come around with a childlike faith and believing and trusting and put all of our confidence in Him. That's what He wants. That's the essence of, of, of being a son of God. It's having that kind of childlike faith that He describes in a child. It's being ingenuous, open, teachable, responsive, trusting, restful. Quiet in the Father's provision. Wanting nothing more than God. God alone. Content with that. Because the Lord knows that's where fulfillment comes from. That's the resource that never fails. That's the supply that's always available. Well, the disciples respond in verse 27. Peter, who is coming more and more to the front as the gospel proceeds, he answers and says to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? What's in it for us? Look what we've left. Peter and Andrew, James and John had all left very lucrative fishing businesses, left their vocations and followed Jesus. What, he says, shall we receive? And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter says, we left it all. What do we get? Jesus is everything. You haven't left anything. You haven't really given up anything. As a friend of mine says, when he became, became a Christian, he had to give up an awful lot of things. Loneliness, fear, guilt, depression. But we don't really give up anything. As Jim Elliott put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You give up your money, or you give up your health, or you give up your night with the boys, or whatever. And God just gives and gives and gives. And you never lack anything. That's the kind of Lord we know. Doesn't want to deprive us of anything. Wants to fill us up, satisfy us. Give us what we need. And he says, you who followed me, you disciples, he says, you'll sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone else. That's us guys. Everyone else who has left father, mother, houses, lands, farms for my namesake will receive a hundredfold in this life and the next. Now, I'm not a very good mathematician, but uh, a hundredfold is not, uh, again, as much. It's a hundred times as much. The Lord just pours it on. He just gives and gives and gives. And then the Lord concludes with what I think is a warning note. Listen, he says, the first will be last, and the last will be first. I can remember once when I was a kid, well, you all can remember being in grade school and these lines you, have to, you used to have to stand in for lunch, and invariably the big kids got there first. You'd start, you know, the whistle would blow or the bell would ring, and you'd start running across the playground, and the big kids would push and shove. This doesn't happen in our school. Our kids are all very under good control. But in most schools, you know, their kids are pushing and shoving and the big kids get up front and the little kids stand up at the end of the line. 
And I remember one time uh, a teacher, a very wise teacher, marching to the end of the line after all that pushing and shoving. Kids were all queued up, and she goes to the end of the line, and she points to the little kid at the end. She says, okay, you're going to be the first in line. And then she points to the big kids at the end and says, you're going to be the last. And she turned the line around. And that's what the Lord is saying. There are a lot of people who think they have it made. They're first in this life, but they don't have it made at all. In fact, the ones who are going to be first are the ones who can't make it. The ones who say, I, I, I don't have what it takes. I need help. I need a Lord. And they're willing to trust Him and rest in Him. Psalm 73 is a very helpful psalm. I commend it to you for your reading this afternoon. We don't have time to look at it in detail. But uh, the psalmist here is concerned about the fact that uh, the wicked have it so good and the righteous uh, don't uh, have things too good. Thank you. And that bothers them. It ought to be the other way around. The righteous ought to have lots of money and the wicked ought to be poor. But unfortunately, he says, sometimes it's the other way around. Not always, but sometimes. And then he discovers something out of his bitterness. It says in verse 18, Surely thou hast set them in slippery places, thou hast cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. It's what he calls in verse 17, their end. He said, I perceive their end, that money doesn't really solve their problems. It doesn't meet their needs. It doesn't make them happier. It doesn't make life more secure. He said, It's like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. In other words, it's like... Uh, Someone waking up and realizing that, that his experiences have all been, been a dream. They're a phantom. They're not real. He says, I, my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, he says, even though I didn't understand for a time, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand in the past. With thy counsel, you are guiding me in the present. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. What do I have to worry about? You took me by the hand. You're leading me through life. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. And here's a clear Old Testament statement of life after death for the Old Testament saints. What, what's the fuss? Why I get upset when I have a God who's going to take care of me like that? And so he says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. You remember the question that the young ruler asked, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, in effect, the nearness of God is your good. Just trust him. Give up your money. Forget the human resources you're relying upon. And let God be your good. Trust him. Believe him. Count on him. And so the psalmist says, I have made the Lord God my refuge. And my question to all of us this morning is, is, is he our refuge? Is he the one we're counting on? Or do we have a more tangible set of assets that we're counting on? 
Is he our life? Is he our joy? Is he the one we're rejoicing in? Is he the one that we're permitting to satisfy us and meet our needs or are we hungering and thirsting after other things? As Jesus put it, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll be filled. Let's pray. And let's examine our own hearts this morning. I honestly believe that no one ever rejects the Lord Jesus for solely intellectual reasons. I believe it's almost always some moral issue. There's something that we want more than God. Would you ask yourself what that is? The Lord's so good to put his finger on those issues in our life, point them out to us. What's the thing that's keeping us from being fully his? Whatever it is, tell the Lord you're willing to give it up. Or if you're not willing, that you're willing to be made willing. Because it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He can give you the desire. Would you ask him to be Lord, holy, fully, to have the run of your life, to rule over every area of your experience? Lord Jesus, thank you that you've come to be Lord. Thank you for this reminder this morning that we're only able to rest when we rest in you. That's what you've made us for. Give us submissive hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.